This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals. The information presented is for general educational purposes only and should not be used as professional medical advice or for the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions. The views and opinions expressed do not represent the views and opinions of our employer or any affiliated institution. Expressed opinions are based on scientific facts under certain conditions and subject to certain assumptions and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions or in any legal proceeding. Full terms and conditions can be found at portablebeads.com. And now onto the episode. Howdy and welcome to Portable Beads, the pediatric board review podcast. We have our final week of the month with a review episode on adolescent medicine, and with me, as she has been all month, is the wonderful Namisha Bajaj. Hello, everyone. So glad to have been here this whole month. If this is your first review episode, rather than doing the case-based format that it's been all month, this is an episode where we just talk about the high-yield points from the different cases throughout the month. The first topic we're going to talk about is sexually transmitted infections in male patients. So, Namisha, you want to start us off? I would love to. The first sexually transmitted infection we are discussing is HSV, or herpes simplex virus. Typically, primary HSV presents with multiple grouped and clustered painful vesicles with inguinal lymphadenopathy. Patients can also have systemic symptoms such as fever and myalgias for five to seven days. Treatment with oral antiviral drugs should be started as soon as possible, ideally within seven days of onset of clinical symptoms. This treatment, one option, is 400 milligrams of oral acyclovir TID for seven days. HSV also often causes recurrent episodes that predominantly present with vesicles without systemic symptoms, and they can be treated episodically, um, such as with 400 milligrams oral acyclovir TID for three days, or patients can choose to have suppressive therapy where they take 400 milligrams of oral acyclovir daily to prevent outbreaks in the first place. Now, Ryan, do you want to talk about the next two STIs? Nothing would bring me more joy, Namisha. So first, we're going to talk about chancroid. So chancroid is a solitary, painful genital ulcer caused by Haemophilus decreyi, and it is associated with tender inguinal lymphadenopathy that presents as separative lymph nodes called buboes, because nothing's more fun to say than bubo. And depending on the location of the chancroid, it can cause dysuria, which is pain with urination, dyspareunia, which is pain with sexual intercourse, or pain with defecation, also known as dyskesia. Upon initiation of treatment, the lesion should resolve within about three to seven days. In addition, the treatment for chancroid is one gram of oral azithromycin in a single dose, which can also be used to treat chlamydial urethritis. The next thing we're going to talk about is gonorrhea, specifically Neisseria gonorrhea, which can be in males either asymptomatic or present with urethritis, which manifests as a mucopurulent or purulent penile discharge and dysuria. It is important to ask about specific sexual practices, including oral and anal intercourse, because it can also present with prostatitis, pharyngitis, ocular infections, or disseminated infections, which determines which sites to swab for testing, as well as ultimate therapy. Another major cause of dysuria and mucopurulent penile discharge though also often presents on asymptomatic screening, is chlamydia, specifically caused by chlamydia trachomatis. Patients with these symptoms should be tested for both bacteria, and if they're positive for chlamydia, one possible treatment is with one gram of oral azithromycin in a single dose, but if they test positive for gonorrhea, ceftriaxone is added to the azithromycin. So the total treatment for both is 250 milligrams of intramuscular ceftriaxone in a single dose, along with one gram of oral azithromycin in a single dose. 
Patients should be abstinent for seven days after treatment is complete and after treating sexual partners. In addition, patients should be tested three months after treatment to test for reinfection due to possible exposure of infected partners. And by the way, I should note, we mentioned it in our episode one, but I'll mention it here again. The guidelines for treatment of gonorrhea and chlamydia has recently changed, but this is a reflection of prior guidelines as the board exams might not reflect the most up-to-date guidelines for treatment. So, Demisha, you want to talk about the next few to wrap out our talk on male STIs? Yes, I would love to. And these last two STIs are HIV and syphilis, which are often co-infections. So I think it ties everything together nicely. So primary syphilis uh, presents with a painless syphilitic chancre caused by treponema pallidum, which is a spirochete. Syphilis is typically diagnosed clinically, though definitive testing includes dark field microscopy, as well as non-treponemal, such as VDRL or RPR, and treponemal FRA antibodies or TPPA tests. Reactive non-treponemal tests should always be followed with a confirmatory treponemal assay. If not treated, syphilis can progress to secondary and then tertiary stages of disease. It is important to know which stage the patient is presenting in because that determines duration of therapy. And just as a reminder, the treatment for syphilis is 2.4 million units of intramuscular penicillin G. And all patients who present with primary or secondary syphilis should be screened for HIV infection. Now, talking about HIV infection or human immunodeficiency virus, it can be associated with syphilis. HIV can either present with no symptoms or nonspecific symptoms, such as fever, malaise, lymphadenopathy, and skin rash. However, HIV itself does not cause ulcerative lesions. HIV is diagnosed by antigen antibody immunoassay in conjunction with an antibody test. Due to the complex nature of management, treatment for HIV requires a facility experienced in the care of these patients, so they should be referred to such a provider as soon as possible in the course of illness. And we'll go into HIV therapy in a later podcast series. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, next, we're going to move on to our next talk, which is about abnormal uterine bleeding. So, Sammy, you want to take it away? All right, guys. So now me and Misha are going to take you through a rapid review of those five contraceptive options that we talked about in our abnormal uterine bleeding case. So let's start it off with the copper IUD. So the important things to know about the copper IUD are, first, it is a LARC, so a long-acting reversible contraceptive. This one is easy to use, effective, has a long duration of action, actually the longest one of any of the ones that we've talked about at 10 years, and it avoids the use of hormones. This is very useful in any patients who can't use estrogen because it is contraindicated or anyone who's wishing to have a contraceptive option without hormone component. Copper IUDs are also a great choice for postcoital emergency contraception, unlike any of the other options that we talk about. And now let's talk about the progesterone-containing IUD. Thanks, Sam. So progesterone-containing IUDs, such as the Mirena and Kylina, are also IUDs just like the copper IUD and LARCs. The Mirena IUD can actually be used for up to five years and actually has been approved to use up to seven years now. They're also very effective at reducing pregnancy, even more so than the copper IUD. And progesterone IUDs also reduce menstrual bleeding, leading to amenorrhea in 20% of women at one year. So the most important thing about this is if you have a patient who has heavy menstrual bleeding and is okay having irregular periods, the progesterone-containing IUDs can be a good option. They're also great for women who have contraindications to estrogen. A similar option to the progesterone-containing IUD, but slightly different efficacy in prevention of pregnancy and slightly different rates of amenorrhea, is the progesterone implant, which is implanted into an arm. 
So the important thing about this is it's important to remember that some adolescents do not want anything placed in their uterus, but would prefer something placed in the arm. And we have to consider lifestyle choices as well as meeting the medical needs of patients when choosing contraception. Now, Sam will talk about our combined estrogen, progesterone, vaginal ring. Absolutely. So the estrogen and progesterone vaginal ring, first of all, contains estrogen, which you have to be aware again of those estrogen contraindications as we discussed in our previous case. With a ring as well, it is much less effective than the IUD or implant at preventing pregnancy. Their risk is about nine pregnancies per 100 woman years. So this is a really great option to treat dysmenorrhea and heavy menstrual bleeding. And it really can make periods lighter than the typical menses for a particular patient. Um, it is recommended to use a second form of contraception at the same time, such as male condoms. Um, this is just important given that higher failure rate. And then similarly, we have the estrogen and progesterone pill. Um, do you want to walk us through that one, Amisha? I would love to. So oral contraception, oral combined contraception pills are the ones that we think about first line for contraception. As Sam said, this combined hormonal therapy is first line if patients have dysmenorrhea or heavy menstrual bleeding. However, these patients do need to take the pill every single day. With that, they have the same effectiveness of the ring, and often teenagers or adults do not use oral contraceptive pills perfectly. Additionally, they are contraindicated in patients with migraines with auras, uh, history of blood clot, and they can lead to side effects such as headaches and nausea and increase the risk of blood clots and stroke. And Sam is now going to talk to us about regular condom use, that gold standard for preventing STIs. Absolutely. So regular condom use is incredibly important to combine with any of the other options that we've discussed so far. It is the only one of these that can actually prevent the spread of HIV and other sexually transmitted infections aside from abstinence. It obviously has no effect on menstrual bleeding, um, but it can decrease the likelihood of pregnancy when used as a second form of birth control and really is only contraindicated in those with the latex allergy, in which case there are non-latex containing condoms. Um, it's effective by itself is pretty poor. Um, it's about 18 pregnancies per 100 women years, so always best to combine it with a different option as well. So now that we've discussed all of those contraceptive options, we're going to go ahead and review that female athlete triad that we discussed in a previous case. So I'm going to throw it over to Liz and she's going to take us through that. So now we're going to go ahead and talk about the female athlete triad. If you remember, this is a disorder that is caused by a combination of poor energy availability, low bone mineral density, and oligomenorrhea or amenorrhea. One of the tests that we talked about for these patients is a DEXA scan. This is important because it's necessary to evaluate bone mineral density and the risk of fracture in these patients as they can have a low bone mineral density. Now Namisha is going to talk about a couple other important tests and screening. For patients with female athlete triad or other types of eating disorders such as anorexia nervosa, we have to check vital signs. This is the most important thing that we evaluate because it determines the stability of the patient. Oftentimes, patients with eating disorders exhibit bradycardia and hypotension due to alterations in the autonomic nervous system as a response to malnutrition. We typically hospitalize children and adolescents with heart rates of less than 50, blood pressures of less than 80 over 50, or orthostatic hypotension. And we treat this autonomic dysfunction with a steady caloric intake. The next thing that we typically measure in these children is electrolytes. Many children who purge using laxatives, diuretics, or induced vomiting can have electrolyte abnormalities such as hypokalemia, hyponatremia, or metabolic acidosis. Also, when they begin to eat again, they're at risk for refeeding syndrome, which manifests as hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, and hypophosphatemia, 
and can also cause possibly dangerous fluid and electrolyte shifts as the body adjusts from a starvation state to a fed state. Another thing we often measure in children with amenorrhea and excessive weight loss is thyroid-stimulating hormone and free thyroxine, because this can also cause amenorrhea. Hyperthyroidism can also cause weight loss and intermittent lightheadedness, which is found in the female athlete triad, and anorexia nervosa. When tested, these patients often have values consistent with euthyroid 6 syndrome, which indicates a normally functioning thyroid gland, but abnormal feedback control of the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis. It is often seen in critical illness and starvation and resolves over time with resolution of primary illness. Now, Liz is going to remind us while we always get EKGs in patients with eating disorders and female athlete triads. Sure. So as Namisha was talking about earlier, these patients are at high risk for electrolyte and fluid shifts, especially if they're experiencing refeeding syndrome. With these patients, we have to check an EKG. What we're looking for is QTC prolongation or other changes that can lead to a risk of life-threatening arrhythmias. We have to be very careful when we are feeding these patients because of the risk of refeeding syndrome. An EKG may actually be the first test that will detect an electrolyte abnormality such as hypo or hyperkalemia. Well, that wraps up our review of the female athlete triad. We're going to close up our review episode now with a discussion on gender dysphoria. If you remember our case, we talked about how transgender adolescents are likely to experience an increased risk of suicide, depression, physical violence, and systemic oppression. The important thing to note about this is that it is not due to them being transgender itself. It's due to the discrimination and the stigma that they face. And I think it's really, really important to emphasize that fact. In the previous episode, we went through a lot of statistics about how discrimination and stigma affect transgender youth. You can go back to the previous episode to get those details, but we're just going to summarize the take-home points. Although, for many of us, our medical education about transgender patients is severely lacking, it is important to remember that these are children who deserve care and dignity. Allowing them to live a life within their gender includes providing gender-affirming care, using their preferred pronouns, helping them participate in support groups, improving medical education, and destigmatization of transgender individuals and gender nonconformity. All of these interventions have been shown to decrease the rate of depression, suicidality, and high-risk behavior and improve health outcomes, and that is ultimately what we want for all of our teenagers. And that wraps up our month on adolescent medicine. I want to thank Ryan, Sammy, and Liz for having me on to talk about something I'm really passionate about, adolescent medicine. We always forget our teenagers, and I want to make sure we don't. Be sure to share this podcast with a friend. It helps build our audience and spread medical knowledge. And next month, make sure to stay tuned because Ryan, Sammy, and Liz will be talking about cardiology, Liz's favorite. That's it, guys. Have a great Saturday. (laughs) Bye, guys. Happy Sunday. To report. Ah! Disclaimer: the this is talking. Uh. Oh. <laughs> An electric cardigan. Whoops. Ooh. Chucks. Because of its ability to prevent the spread of HIV and other sexually transmitted affections. Affections? <laughs> Boom. Nailed it.
Done. Unclear if nailed it is the appropriate terminology. <laughs> you can't pretend. You can't pretend, sir. Oh, it was just a delight.